All right, I want to encourage you to take out your Bibles and your outlines today as we begin this uh, Christmas series together. It's called Behold, a Savior is Born. To kick things off today, we're going to see that thousands of years ago, there were prophets in the Old Testament who wrote about a future day where God would send a Savior to his people. He would make a way for us to be healed from the devastating effects of sin. And it's during this season we celebrate that in a small, dirty stable in Bethlehem so long ago, there was a baby born who would change the world by bringing eternal hope. There's a song out there, Christmas changes everything. And I believe that. That's the truth. And to really, really enjoy Christmas, you have to embrace hope. Now, for me, this happened many years ago when I was a small boy about the age of my grandsons. And uh, first thing my sister and I would do right after Thanksgiving is we'd get out our little pieces of lined paper and we'd write our wish list to Santa Claus, right? And uh, the hope was that if you gave it to your parents and they would mail it to the North Pole, you would receive some, if not all of those things, on Christmas morning. And then as the days moved along through the Advent season, You'd be waiting for the time your, you know, the presents would be wrapped and be under the tree, and then you'd be looking to see if there were some with your name on it as well. And that's where hope begins for kids and for us as well. But something bigger, greater, and more meaningful than any earthly store can offer is really the message of Christmas. And so as we think about the birth of Jesus, we have that hope that's greater than the electronics, than the toys, than the jewelry. We now have things like purpose and meaning and significance, forgiveness and wholeness available to us. These are gifts that we don't have to, excuse me, we don't have to wait to open. When we place our faith in Jesus, they're already ours. And that reality fills us with hope no matter what circumstance or situation we find ourselves in. So let's look at our scripture reading. Look over to Galatians chapter 4, if you would. Galatians chapter 4. As we share these Christmas messages now through Christmas Eve evening as well. Our scripture reading is Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. The Apostle Paul's the writer, and he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we commit this time as we dig deep into your word, Lord, to remind us of all these prophecies that have occurred some that have been predicted and then have occurred, and we know there's many more to happen in the life of Jesus at his second coming. Help us, Lord, to just realize the importance of the word of God and how accurate it is. And also, Lord, what a blessing, what detail you went to to bring about the Christmas story that would lead to redemption for us on the cross. So, Lord, as we go through this wonderful season, uh, may we just reflect once again and adore you, Lord, today in new and fresh ways. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to look at three categories of predictions that show the Bible is accurate 
and that Jesus is the fulfillment of the long-awaited Old Testament Messiah whom the prophets wrote about and point to. First thing on your outline, the prediction of the Messiah's birth, birth gives us hope. It gives us great hope. Put yourselves in the shoes of the Jewish follower of Yahweh in the Old Testament. You go to the synagogue, and on occasion, uh, the rabbi would get up and he'd either orally present or read from the Torah verses talking about a future Messiah. What a longing must have come upon their souls, especially during their times of captivity or their land was controlled by the Roman Empire. Think of the picture of the Israelites in Egypt, enslaved for 430 years, and Moses is called of God to be a deliverer, a type of Christ for his people. Jews have been waiting for centuries for the true Messiah to come, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that hope and promise. And so as we begin this Christmas season, may we sense that longing, that hopeful anticipation that a Savior would come as promised to deliver us from our sin, give us the assurance and promise of eternal life. I hope you see the Bible as a grand book of romance where God the Father comes to meet with his special creation. It begins with Adam and Eve and then spreads to all his creation. And there he desires in the garden there to redeem Adam and Eve from their sin. In the early part of Genesis, we see God communing with Adam and Eve and after they sin, they realize their nakedness. And what does God do? The first act of sacrifice, of blood to cover sin, he kills animals and gives them animal skins because now they realize they're uncovered, they're naked before a holy God. We, saw, we see also in Genesis the first prediction of the gospel. Second thing on your outline, the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel as we think about the birth of Christ. And it was predicted in Genesis 3.15, the earliest place in the Bible we see a picture of the gospel. God said to the serpent who caused Adam and Eve to be tempted to sin, he says, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And the Messiah, he shall bruise your head, but Satan, the serpent, you shall bruise his heel. In the message modern-day paraphrase of that same verse, it says, I'm declaring war between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He'll wound your head, you'll wound his heel. You will be responsible for the crucifixion, Satan, but guess what? Jesus will crush your head at the resurrection and, of course, in the end times at his second coming. Except for John 3.16, no verse in the Bible is more crucial and definitive than Genesis 3.15. As one writer writes, the whole of Scripture is not packed into every Scripture, but we may allowably expect every Scripture to prepare and make room for the whole. And this is what happens in Genesis 3.15. This is the beginning. This opens the floodgates of the redemption story throughout the Bible. First, it establishes the principle that runs throughout the Old Testament, creating an expectation of a redeemer who would be a descendant of Adam and Eve. Second, it establishes the parameters by which God will redeem his people from their sin. From the earliest times, Genesis 3.15 has been called the proto-evangelium because it's the first note of God's redemptive intention following the fall in the Garden of Eden. So we see this as the first. Third, this verse establishes a cosmic explanation 
for the disorder of the world. Satan is at work. And true, there is no mention of Satan here, only a serpent. Adam and Eve are responsible for their actions and are punished accordingly, but their actions are intertwined with the evil one who brought about the temptation, Satan himself. And fourthly, the principle of the victory of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of darkness is established from the beginning pages of Scripture. I live with this thought in mind. There's so much change going on in the world around us. There's so much that we can't control. We think about even in our own families with some of their values and their attitudes, the things that go on in the workplace, in politics, in government. We want control. We want to dictate how things should go. But then I turn with hope to the fact that God is sovereign, that he's on his throne, that he doesn't have a panic button sitting next to him on the throne that he knows the beginning of time and the end of time all at the same time. He's in control of what's happening. As we read in Revelation, the Christians are going to win, but we're not only going to win, we're going to thrive, we're going to prevail over the wickedness of sin and the people who act out because uh, they are trapped in their sin. And that is the result of trusting in the gospel, and it was given to man and not angels to redeem and in turn share this gospel with others. Just the other day, I think it was Friday, I was reading in my devotions in 1 Peter chapter 1, a verse that I hadn't seen or thought of much, but in verse 10 it talks about salvation being something that only the angels look at and ponder. They don't understand it because they're not in our seat, in our situation of, of sinners needing a Savior. That's how special the gospel is, that the angels can't even understand it. So the fulfillment of this verse is found in Jesus and the book of Galatians points to the time and purpose for Jesus' coming. So let me reread those verses we read just a few moments ago. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Think about it. In the fullness of time, God knew the exact moment from eternity past when he was going to send Jesus Christ to this earth. And then he said, born of woman, born under the law. And his purpose was to redeem us who are under the law because we could not live up to the standards of the law. And he adopted us as sons and daughters. And because you're sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He wants an intimate relationship with us. That's what that means, Abba, Father. Daddy, daddy, that kind of relationship. And then he says, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Romans 8 tells us that you and I, we are going to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. I can't even fathom what that would be like to be able to have everything that the son of God has and be able to possess that as well. We see also the hope of the payment for sin, the hope of the payment for sin. We see a prophecy of that in Isaiah 53, verse 5 and verse 11. He says, but he was pierced, speaking of the Messiah, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Verse 11, we looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago as we were studying Galatians, out of the anguish of his soul. Think about that. God allowed his, allowed his only son, his only begotten son, to be crucified. Out of the anguish of his soul, 
he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Imagine the emotion of God allowing his son to be crucified on the cross and then to give us Christ's righteousness in exchange for our sin. People are hurting more currently than any time of the year. I think of two people, my aunt and another dear friend, that today or in the next few days are going to pass into eternity. What a time to lose loved ones during the holiday season. Loneliness sets in around this holiday season more than ever because of dysfunctional homes. And I had one parent tell me that um, their kids weren't coming home for Thanksgiving. And they said to me, it's all right. And I said, you know what? It's not all right. It's not okay. It's okay to be sad and disappointed about that. We're at a time where people are hurting and have needs. And we receive payment for our sin and God imputing, giving us righteous nature so we can understand him more clearly and to be more like him and have hope in him no matter the circumstances in our holiday season. But we find the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 when the Messiah, Jesus, came to earth. In John 1.29, notice what Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, said. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I love how Eugene Peterson uh, paraphrases the beginning of verse uh, 14 in John 1. He says, God came and pitched his tent among us. He came into our neighborhood to be with us. That's the kind of God that we have. So we see the hope of the payment of sin. Okay? We see the hope of the gospel, but thirdly, we see the hope of the resurrection. The resurrection. Again, we're looking at prophecies in the Old Testament being fulfilled in the New Testament. We see in uh, Psalm 16:10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. Jesus isn't going to stay buried long enough, the prediction is, to have a decaying body. In the Mishnah, it says this, All Israel has a portion in the world to come. For it is written, Thy people are all righteous, they shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. But the following have no portion therein. He who maintains that resurrection is not a biblical doctrine, the Torah is not divinely inspired. Now, what are they saying there? They're saying if you don't believe in the afterlife, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then you can't say that you believe the Torah is inspired. That's from the Mishnah. So Acts 2.31, the fulfillment of Psalm 16.10, he, King David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. What I love about Christianity and Judaism is they're both founded on actual historical facts. And one of the things that's neat about the resurrection is a group of historians who were not believers got together a number of years ago, examined all the evidence about Jesus' resurrection, and these 10 historians who were not unbelievers said it was an irrefutable fact that Jesus rose from the dead. This is the most important doctrine of the gospel in Christianity. 
Jesus even predicted he would die and rise again and then went on to fulfill that. So here are those three predictions, the gospel, the payment for our sins, the resurrection, that lay out the redemptive desires of our Heavenly Father, and he's so committed to rescuing us from our sin and maintaining a relationship with him, at this Christmas season we should be thankful and walking in the truth and the hope of eternal life. Our first application is this, rejoice that God had a redemptive plan from the beginning to restore his special creation, mankind. God thinks a lot about his stars and the animals he's created and the planets, but we are his special creation, unique. So Jesus both affirms and continues God's redemptive plan as we celebrate through this Christmas season. The second main point here is the prediction that points to the Messiah coming to earth to give us hope to give each and every one of us hope. You see, the Messiah's birth brings great hope. Micah 5.2, we often read this at Christmas time. But again, a prophecy, a prophecy that was hundreds of years before Jesus came. In Micah 5.2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old and of ancient, or from ancient days. Think about this. Jesus leaves his throne in heaven by the asking of his heavenly father, the ancient of days, to wrap himself in human flesh, to come and live among us. And he came to bring the light of heaven, to bring some of heaven down here to earth, to point us all to the one true God. It was prophesied that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem and the fulfillment is found in Acts 2.1 and confirmed by the Jewish religious leaders whom Herod asked where the king of the Jews would be born. Now look at this exchange in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It was well known among the Jews at the time of Jesus' birth that he would come from Bethlehem. In John 7, 42, it says, Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? It's only fitting that Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, should be the birthplace of the one who would be later called the bread of life. Then we see the Messiah dwelling. Dwelling with mankind brings hope. He comes to earth in Bethlehem, but then he dwells with us. And that was predicted hundreds of years before Jesus came in Isaiah 7:14, a very famous promise, a prophecy in Christmas in the Christmas season. In Isaiah 7:14 it says, "Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now we see in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians that the Greek people at the time of Jesus were searching for wisdom. We know the Jews, they wanted wonders and miracles and amazing things that would be signs as evidence that the Messiah had come. Isaiah says to the Jewish readers, this will be a sign to you that the virgin will bear a son and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. This is the miracle of the virgin birth, a biological impossibility, thus a miracle. It was necessary so that Jesus would be without sin. You see, sin passed down through Adam. He was what's called the federal head in theology, the federal head of all mankind. And thus Jesus did not inherit sin because he was born a woman, not man. And the effects of original sin didn't come upon him. He was 100% God, 100% man when he was born in the manger in Bethlehem. And this is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18, and then verses 23 and 24. It says in Matthew 1:18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed or given in marriage to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. In the same chapter, verse 23, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Emmanuel, what does that mean? Emmanuel is a masculine Hebrew name, meaning God with us or God is with us. The name Emmanuel appears in the Bible three times, twice in the Old Testament, we read one, Isaiah 7, 14. Isaiah 8, 8 is another place. And then we read it again in the Gospel of Matthew 1, 23. Isaiah predicted this 700 years before it happened. This is the miracle of the incarnation. God taking on human flesh to walk among his created people and reveal himself to them as God. Then we see the prediction that he was predicted to be called Lord in the Old Testament. Lord in the Old Testament, the Messiah revealed to us as the Lord brings great hope. In Jeremiah 23, 6, it says, In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. So he was given that name, Lord. Of course, he was given many other names. And we'll see more of that as we go through the Christmas season. But in Luke 2, 11, what did the angel say to the shepherd? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So what does it mean that Jesus takes on this name Lord? Well, a Lord is someone with authority, control, or power over others. To say that someone is Lord is to consider that person a master or a ruler of some kind. In Jesus' day, the word Lord was often used as a title of respect for earthly authorities in the military and the government. There was a leper that Jesus healed, and he called Jesus Lord in Matthew 8, 2. He was showing Jesus respect as a healer and a teacher. 
However, after the resurrection, the title Lord took on a new meaning as it applied to Jesus. It became much more than a title of honor or respect. Saying Jesus is Lord became a way of declaring Jesus' deity, that he was equal with God. And the first place we see that is doubting Thomas. When Jesus offered for him to touch his you know, hands and his side to see if those wounds were real, and he said, I believe my Lord and my Savior. So what does it mean that Jesus is Lord to you and I personally? Well, one pastor said this, for Jesus to be Lord of your life means that he is the ruler, the boss, the master of your whole life. He cannot be Lord of a part. He must be given control of the entire, of your entire life, the whole life. So God should be in on our entertainment choices. For young people, it'll be, God needs to be involved in our dating relationships and our friends, our money choices as young people and adults. In so many other areas, he needs to be Lord of those things. And we look at those things through the perspective, the filter of God's word. So at this Christmas season, are you surrendering to the Lordship of Christ at your parties and all your activities? Are you honoring him as an ever-present Lord at the events this holiday season? Sometimes, or something to consider as we go through these many opportunities as we celebrate, are we doing this to honor and glorify the Lord as we enjoy our times together with other people? So our application, we are filled with joy at this Christmas season because the Lord has come. We are filled, and we should be filled with joy at this Christmas season, because the Lord has come. Okay, so thirdly, we see this other category of prediction this morning, and the prediction is that the Messiah will rule and reign, gives us hope. We don't look just at this first advent, we also consider the second advent, when Jesus will come back physically. And right now, he, is, he, he contains these things that we're going to talk about right now, but we will see them in person when our faith becomes sight. So first of all, we see the Messiah is a prophet. A prophet. He was predicted to be one in Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. I will rise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This was fulfilled in Matthew 21, 11, And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus is a prophet. What is a prophet? What do they do? What is assigned to this office? Well, first of all, they speak on behalf of God. Second of all, they perform miracles. Thirdly, they warn of impending judgment that comes from God to ask them to repent and turn away so that God might show compassion and mercy on them. So speak on behalf of God, perform miracles, warn of impending judgment, and lastly, predict the future. We see that in the Old Testament. Jesus continues to fulfill that role, and by the Holy Spirit living in us, can teach us God's word and direct us to do his will. So he's a prophet. Second of all, he is a priest. He is a priest. It's amazing to think about this idea of a priest. In Psalm 110.4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest predicting this Messiah. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 3.1, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle 
and high priest of our confession. We could spend a lot of time talking about and understanding this role of Christ being our great high priest. But here's a few things to think about. Priest means one who mediates in religious services. Also means one who's holy or set apart to perform those services. Now, interestingly, Jesus was not from the line of Levi, but Jesus, like Melchizedek, was ordained by God apart from the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And like the Levitical priests, uh, Jesus offered a sacrifice to satisfy the law of God when he offered himself for our sins in Hebrews 7. Unlike the Levitical priests who had to continually offer sacrifices, Jesus only had to offer his sacrifice once, gaining eternal redemption for all who come to God and accept his gift by faith. One other important point about Jesus' priesthood, every priest is appointed from among men, but Jesus, through God from eternity, became a man in order to suffer death and then serve as our high priest. As a man, he was subjected to all the weaknesses and temptations that you and I are so that he could personally relate to our struggles when we come to him, Hebrews 4.15. Jesus is greater than any other priest. He's called the great high priest in Hebrews 4.14. And that gives us boldness to come to the very throne room of God by grace that we may attain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 4.16. So Hebrews 4.14 says this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. And this morning in my devotions, I was uh, <clears throat> reading from a person as they were sharing a devotion about Christ being the great high priest. And I never realized this before, but in Hebrews 7.25, it says, Consequently, Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Think about that. One of Jesus' roles is that daily he is praying and making intercession for you, maintaining the sanctification process, maintaining our salvation. What an amazing thought, how much our Savior cares about us personally to be praying for us every day. Lastly, today, the Messiah is king. He is king. In Psalm 2.6, it says, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This was fulfilled in Matthew 27.37. And over his head, Pontius Pilate put the charge against Jesus, which read, This is Jesus the king of the Jews. Now the Jewish religious leaders balked at that. They thought they should have written on there, he said he was the king of the Jews. But Pilate left the sign as written because God wanted everyone to know that Jesus was and still is the king of the Jews. God gives Jesus the authority due to his deity to be judge and ruler over the earth. We see in Revelation how he's going to return and set up his eternal kingdom with a new Jerusalem during his millennial reign. And at some point, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 24, Jesus will give back his power to judge to his heavenly father. In 1 Corinthians 15, 24, it says, then comes the very end when all the judgments have been done and he delivers the kingdom to God the father 
after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Jesus is the very King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, as it tells us in Revelation 19.6. As Jesus rides on that horse out of heaven, coming through the eastern sky at his second advent, his return, he's going to wear a robe, and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And everybody will know who he is. And Philippians says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord. So is Jesus the King and Lord of your life? Do you show him respect and honor by your obedience to what he commands? Is Jesus a prophet, a teacher to listen to his words and learn of his will? Is Jesus your high priest? He wants to take your prayer request to God's throne for him to God to consider to answer. So our last application is this, the ministry of Jesus being a prophet and a priest and king continues to be available to us all. And may we avail ourselves of that opportunity. So as we close this morning, the challenge to us as we have seen many of the prophecies given and fulfilled, how much confidence does it give us in reading God's word? the inspired word of God that's inerrant down to the last jot, the last tittle, the last punctuation mark, as it says in Matthew. And then follow through and obey what it says since we are the sons and daughters of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So our key thought, as we come and adore Christ in a fresh way this Christmas season, allow him to rule and to reign in your heart. Allow him to rule and reign in your heart. One, one night at dinner, a man who had spent many summers in Maine fascinated his companions by telling an experience about a little town that he grew up in known as Flagstaff. And in that town, it was decided by the government to build a dam. But the problem was the town was in the way of the future dam. And so the citizens were told that they had six months to uh, prepare and evacuate because their little town was going to be flooded out permanently and everything would be lost. Well, people had no hope. And so nobody repaired their houses anymore. Nobody spent time painting. Nobody spent time uh, fixing the gates around their house. They just let everything go because there was no hope because their homes were going to be destroyed and be replaced by the water. So at Christmas, we have the luxury of looking back over the Old Testament prophecies and seeing many of them come to fruition in the birth of Jesus. And while the Israelites waited on God to come, we look back at a God who came and is presently with us that we have hope. The writer of that story said, where there is no faith in the future, there's no power in the present. But because we have hope and a savior to help us to get out of the sin that we're in, we can rejoice. Far too many of us have the mentality of that old little town. We've stopped believing that God is with us and therefore nothing will ever get better. We've stopped hoping for a change in the wind or a change in direction. But when we give up hope, it becomes its own self-fulfilling prophecy. When we lose hope, we stop pursuing our spouse. We turn to substance abuse. We turn to pornography, we lose the will to fight, and our mind becomes a dangerous place. But the good news here today, there was a virgin who gave birth. 
That child was and is Emmanuel, God with us. Never, ever lose heart. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in Christ. And Lord, we can see that this hope is rooted in your word. As we talked about these different prophecies, these different predictions, and how many of them were filled. In the Bible, there's over 365 different prophecies about the Messiah. Most of them have already been fulfilled, and we know more are to come. So Lord, fill us with hope at this Christmas season of the confidence, of, of confidence that we have in the faith in one who actually lived and is ever interceding for us. And may we share that hope with others throughout this season. We pray and ask in Jesus' name.